Malachi chapter 2, 2 verses 10 to 16. 2, 10 to 16. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously, each against his brother, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers, or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, For what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Amen. The prophet here is rebuking their sinful marriages, the sinful marriages of the people. In the first part, it is sinful because they are divorcing their wives for the daughter of a foreign god. In the second part, they are divorcing their wives, their companion of their youth, the wife by covenant. Basically, these men had married uh, women who were of the faith, and then they divorced them and married foreign women. These are the sins that are being committed here in this chapter. And the Lord has a strong rebuke for these men. It says in verse 10, Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? (coughs) Yes, they have one Father. They have one God. God is their Father. He means God as their Father. He's not speaking of the patriarchs or Abraham or anything like that. He's speaking of God because he's saying it in parallel to the second question. One Father, one God created us. There is one God who created them. And if that's the case, why is it that if they are children of God, they are dealing treacherously with each other? He says, why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Treacherously. Treachery is something that traitors commit. Those who are bound those who have sworn to be devoted to each other in one's country, but even in the marriage covenant. They are devoted to each other by the covenant of marriage. It says in 2.14, Wife by covenant before the Lord, vows have been made to one another. So when one or the other betrays the other, then it's known as treachery. Treachery. And this is 
uh, a word that's emphasized in our passage. Verse 10 says treachery. Verse 11, Judah has dealt treacherously. Then verse 15, let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. And in verse 16, so take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. God despises, he hates those who fail to keep their word. And when that word is emphasized, made more solemn in an oath, in a vow, by swearing to the Lord in the presence of others, then it's even worse. This is what these men have done. And when a man does it, uh, does this, he and marries another woman, he's not actually sinning just between himself and God. He's sinning against the wife. He's sinning against the new wife. He's sinning against those in the families of whoever's involved. <laughs> he's sinning against many people when he commits this. That's why he says against his brother, each against his brother. And when they do it, they profane the covenant of the fathers. They profane the covenant because the covenant was supposed to be maintained with purity, with cleanness, with faithfulness. But when it is breached, then it is profaned. It is made filthy and dirty. It's made unholy. Those in the covenant are supposed to live a holy life. And by this covenant, he means the Mosaic covenant, starting in Exodus chapter 19. This, in the covenant, in the nation of Israel, they were supposed to be faithful to God and faithful to one another. And in unison, serve the Lord. Verse 11. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah is the southern tribe. Judah was the one exiled previously, about 70 years before Malachi, in 586 B.C. It was destroyed by the Babylonians. But now he's speaking to the tribes who have re-entered their own land and identifies them as Judah, Israel, and specifically in Jerusalem. In the place where the center of God's worship was, both before the destruction of the temple in 586 by Nebuchadnezzar, and then after its reconstruction in 516, under the ministries of Haggai, Zechariah, Ezra, and Nehemiah. It was restored. But after it was restored, they are still committing abominations in the place of worship, in the house of worship. And how so? For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. How have they profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves? The sanctuary which the Lord loves He has appointed it. He has ordained it. His presence is there. His ministry is there. His priests are supposed to minister there and his people are supposed to worship there. They're supposed to pray there. They're supposed to offer sacrifices. They're supposed to hear the word of the Lord. That's the place which the Lord loves. It's his sanctuary. Notice there, sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. It's not the people's sanctuary. The people are the stewards of it. It is God's sanctuary. But how is it that they profaned it? If they are committing 
wrong marriages, sinful marriages, if they are marrying foreign women, notice there, the daughter of a foreign god, when they are marrying foreign idolatrous women, even though these women may not enter the sanctuary of the Lord, the men who have married them are living in sin and then they presume to come to the house of God to worship him. That is the profanation of which he speaks. He's speaking of this. They come to do the ritualistic thing while living in sin. And their sin here, they divorced the wife of their youth and then married a foreign wife. That's what's going on. And this is why the sanctuary of the Lord is profaned, made unholy. Because God doesn't want our mere presence with our rituals. He wants a heart of obedience and then the rituals. Otherwise, the rituals are meaningless. They're futile and vacuous. But... What will God do? Verse 12. This is what God will do to the man who does this. Verse 12. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. Anyone who attempts to do this, who awakes and answers, probably in response to what God is saying, saying that he is guiltless, he prays, he thinks everything is fine between himself and God, who presumes to answer back to God, who wakes up from his stupor, from his slumber, and calls on God and asks God for forgiveness and for intercession And then he presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. When there's a fake repentance, fake prayers, and then an offering, what will God do to that man? It says in 12, the Lord will cut him off. Cut him off from the tents of Jacob. There's no life, only death. To cut off is another way of saying, deserves death, will receive death. 13. Not only do they do that to the Lord in verse 12, they intensify, exacerbate their sin in verse 13. And this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. What else do they do? They go to the altar of the Lord, they go to the temple, and they go to present their sacrifices. In this case, this is actually different than chapter 1. In chapter 1, they presented their sacrifices, but defective, blemished sacrifices and God rejected them. In this chapter, it's assumed that they are presenting the unblemished sacrifices he required, however, without repentance. And they have a fake repentance. He says here, tears, weeping, groaning. 
But God's indicating to them that it's fake. It doesn't benefit them at all. It's to no avail because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. They know that even though they are there in the sanctuary, in the temple of the Lord, at the altar of the Lord, with tears, weeping, and groaning, God still isn't blessing them. They understand he's not blessing them, and that's why they are upset with their crocodile tears, fake tears. 14. Yet you say, for what reason? Here again, the unrepentant, they have a retort. The unrepentant, they have their objections, as though nothing was made clear already. They say, for what reason? I didn't know that. Why are you talking so harshly? Why are you saying that? That's the way they answer. For what reason? As though God's will was not already made known in previous scriptures from Moses onward, and even Malachi by implication, whatever he's been preaching so far. None of that has a bearing on their sin. They have the audacity to ask for what reason? Well, God answers them, and he answers them very sternly. He says in 14, the answer of the Lord, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. The answer from the Lord through the prophet is, God is a witness. God is alive. He is observant. His eyes move to and fro throughout the earth. And therefore, he's a witness between the husband and the wife because the husband has the audacity to divorce the wife of his youth, it says in 14 and 15. 14 and 15, the wife of your youth. That's where the bond should have been established and should have remained until death. Yet they have no love. They have no commitment to keep their vows. In fact, they have whatever benefits they perceive to marry the daughter of a foreign god. They would rather seize upon those benefits than keep their word before the Lord. He says again, 14, 15, and 16, treacherously, treacherously, treacherously. That's how bad it is. And it identifies her further as your companion. Your companion. This is alluding to Genesis 2, 18 and 25. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Genesis 2, 18 to 25. Yet he is rejecting the companion that God has ordained for him. 15. The wicked behave this way, but not the righteous. Not the righteous, according to 15, but not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. Those who have the Spirit, and we're not always 
fully filled with the Spirit. But those who have a remnant of the Spirit, at least they understand the will of God and they do not divorce as it's happening here. Those who have the Spirit of God do not behave like this. That's what he says in the first part, first sentence of 15. And further, 15 says, And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? If they don't divorce, then what do they do as they seek a godly offspring? He doesn't answer the question here. He assumes that the people know. And we may say, well, he remains married to his wife until death. He raises his children to be godly. He teaches them the word of the Lord. He teaches them to pray. He teaches them how to live. He teaches them with the wisdom of life from the word of life. That's what he does seeking a godly offspring. But that's not what they were doing. These men didn't care. They only cared for whatever fleshly, carnal benefits they wanted in divorcing their wives and marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Unbelieving wives. 15. Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. If this comparison, uh, the comparison is made, the wicked in verse 14 and then the righteous in verse 15, in order to highlight, to emphasize the fact that these men have something essentially wrong with them, fundamentally wrong with them, and it resides in their spirit. They don't have a right spirit. They don't have a converted spirit. They don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. That's why they deal treacherously against the wife of their youth. 16. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. 16. It's related to the passage in this way. When God announces that he hates divorce, he's telling these men exactly how he thinks, if, they, if that has not been made clear already. He hates it. He doesn't love it. He doesn't excuse it. He hates it. I hate divorce. Not only does the Lord, the God of Israel, hate divorce, he not only hates the action, the sin, but look at that in 16 more carefully. And him who covers his garment with violence. That means he also hates the man. God hates the sin and the sinner, according to Malachi 2.16. He hates sin and the sinner, because the sinner is an unrepentant sinner. While he's unrepentant, he's in a state of hatred in his relationship with the Lord. He is an object of hate. Uh, he says it's violence. Your translation, NASB, may say wrong. It is better rendered violence. That's how this word is typically rendered. And if we render it with violence, it would be violence toward the covenant. 
And the object of the violence is one's wife. It would be violating violence against the covenant mentioned in verse 14. And the wife specifically, the object of this violence. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Here again, we find Malachi as he started the chapter where he told them to take it to heart in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Take it to heart here as well in 15 and 16. He says, take heed to your spirit, your inner man. You are corrupt to the core. And that's what you need to have redeemed, rectified, renewed. And unless that happens, you'll keep dealing treacherously. There's a few points that we can reiterate with cross-references. Let's go back to verse 10. Verse 10, Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? When he says this, he's speaking in context of the nation. He's speaking of the nation of Israel, or in this case, Judah, the southern kingdom that has been restored. It is true that God is the father of everyone, every human being, by creation. He is the God of all human beings by creation. This is expressed in Acts chapter 17, verse 28. Acts chapter 17, verse 28. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. For we also are his offspring. And 29. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. By creation, yes, we are children of God. But the national adoption is what is in view here. National adoption. And not even actually at this point, uh, redemption, being a child of God by redemption. That is only if one is converted and is found in Christ. Then he is a child of God. But in this case, he's dealing with this national adoption. And for this, we find it in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 to 23. Exodus 4, 22 to 23. When the nation was numerous in the land of Egypt, and Moses is appointed to deliver them, this is what God told Moses to say. Exodus 4:22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Israel adopted as a son by the Lord. Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 
32. This is Moses as well. Moses before the, the last uh, song he taught them before he died. Exodus 32, 6. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is not he your father who has bought you? He has made you and established you. Is not he your father who has bought you? And how so? By making them and establishing them as a nation. 32, 19. 32, 19 and 20. Exodus 32, 19. And the Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. Then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be. For they are a perverse generation, sons in whom is no faithfulness. Israel, a perverse generation, no faithfulness, which is hinting at, echoing actually also Malachi chapter 2, 2, 10 to 16. No faithfulness, only treachery. It's in their nature to be that way. They profane the covenant of their fathers, he said in Malachi 2.10. Where was this covenant announced? Exodus 19. Exodus chapter 19, 4 to 6. Exodus 19, 4 to 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. At Sinai, God says, You have seen yourselves what I did in Egypt and delivered you from Egypt to bring them to himself. But now in 5 and 6, he says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, they must be obedient to the grace of God and keep the covenant of God. If they do so, then they will be his own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is his. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation if they obey and keep the covenant. But when they disobey, then they are breaking the covenant. They are profaning the covenant. As for marrying the daughter of a foreign god, Malachi 2.11 mentions this sin. They married the daughter of a foreign god. How is that profaning the covenant of Moses? We find this in Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 6. Or we could read to 11. Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 to 11. When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you are entering to possess it and shall clear away many nations before you, 
the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God shall deliver them before you and you shall defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their asherim and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with them who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. The men of Malachi's day, they knew this passage. Moses was read every Sabbath. There was a pattern, a schedule of reading sections of the law of Moses every Sabbath. He was read. They knew this passage. It's no secret and it's no ambiguous passage. Look what it says in verse 3. You shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Don't do it. Yet they did it. They did it and sinned against God. Malachi actually was not the only one to face this sin and to confront it. It's also confronted in the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Ezra 9, verses 1 and 2. Now, when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, saying, The people of Israel... And the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands according to their abominations. Those are the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. As well, verse 11, 9-11. 
which you have commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to take possession of it is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from end to end, and with their impurity. Verse 14. Shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor any who escape? And the contemporary of Ezra, Nehemiah. Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah 13. And we read 23 to 29. Nehemiah 13, 23. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So I contended with them and cursed them, and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Joyada, the son of Eliashib the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanbalat the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Nehemiah confronted the sin. We might think that in the Old Testament, this kind of regulation was present and it was strict. But in the New Testament, there's much leeway. There's much grace. God's a God of grace in the New Testament. People think like that, yet even the New Testament warns us about the same sin. It warns us in 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The chapter takes up the subject of singleness and marriage, and even divorce. Singleness, marriage, divorce, and even remarriage. And it says this in chapter 7, 1 Corinthians 7, 39. 7.39. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. It says only in the Lord. Chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 5. 1 Corinthians 9, 5. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas. He says, they have a right to take a believing wife along with them in the ministry. The unbelieving wife would be a hindrance, would be a burden, would undermine the ministry. 
2 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. This chapter or this passage doesn't say anything about marriage, but it does say do not be bound together with unbelievers. It does say in 15, what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? It does say that, which is applicable to any kind of binding relationship, (coughs) strong relationship. And the strongest of all human relationships is marriage, according to Scripture. Because the two become one flesh. And what God has put together, brought together, let no man separate. Children separate from their parents. They leave the house. They go elsewhere. They live many miles away often. But not the husband and wife. They're supposed to be together until death. And even the children, they sever their relationship with their parents whenever they marry a spouse. And then that is the most important relationship to them, to the children, their new spouse, not their parents. So the Bible definitely means to include marriage in this prohibition in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. What about this matter of fake repentance and false worship? Fake repentance, false worship. God does not listen. God does not take heed to the prayers of the people. We find examples of this in the book of Jeremiah. Shall we turn to the book of Jeremiah? Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. The people are at the gate of the Lord's house, and Jeremiah is told to go there and preach to the people. The gate of the temple. This is before it was destroyed by the Babylonians and then uh, rebuilt in the time of Haggai Zechariah. Now, In the first part of the chapter, verses 1 to 7, Jeremiah is told to go there and preach to the crowds that enter the temple of the Lord, and that they should not trust in deceptive words. Verse 4, do not trust in deceptive words, saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. That's what they say. However, they practice sin. So he says, verse 8, we pick it up at verse 8. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal 
murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, that you may do all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and I spoke to you rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brothers, all the offspring of Ephraim. They're not supposed to come to the house of the Lord to worship when they have unrepentant sin in their life. And he's threatening to destroy the temple, which he eventually did in Jeremiah's day. Just as he destroyed Shiloh and the tabernacle, which was located in the northern kingdom, the Assyrians, they destroyed and demolished the north. Here he's saying, now the south with the temple, the actual physical structure, the building, the temple, this too, even if it has my name in it, I'll get rid of it. Because there's false worship taking place in it. It's false because they refuse to repent of sin. Not only is he threatening them, but he's telling Jeremiah this solemn word. Look at this solemn word, 716, 716 to 20. As for you, that's to Jeremiah, the Lord to Jeremiah. As for you, do not pray for this people and do not lift up cry or prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I do not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood and the fathers kindle the fire and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven and they pour out drink offerings to other gods in order to spite me. Do they spite me, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves they spite to their own shame? Therefore thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast and on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. <clears throat> he even tells the prophet, there's no use, no need to pray for these people anymore. 11 of Jeremiah. Jeremiah eleven, fourteen. Jeremiah 11, 14, 14 to 17. Therefore, as for you, do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not listen when they call to me because of their evil. What right has my beloved in my house when she has done many vile deeds? Can the sacrificial flesh take away from you your evil or disaster so that you can rejoice? 
The Lord called your name a green olive tree, beautiful in fruit and form. With the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire on it, and its branches are worthless. And the Lord of hosts who planted you has pronounced evil against you because of the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done to provoke me by offering up sacrifices to Baal. They are trusting in the sacrificial flesh without repenting. Verse 15. He says, What right has my beloved in my house when she has done many vile deeds? God is the husband. The nation is his wife. The nation has committed many vile deeds. And he says, The sacrificial flesh which you offer, um, offer up to me, it's not going to spare you. It's not going to divert all of the punishment that I'm going to bring on you. You deserve it. And 14 again, verse 14, Jeremiah, don't pray for them. I'm done with them. No more. Also, chapter 14, Jeremiah 14. Jeremiah 14, 10 to 12. 14, 10. Thus says the Lord to this people, even so, they have loved to wander. They have not kept their feet in check. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and call their sins to account. So the Lord said to me, Do not pray for the welfare of this people. When they fast, I am not going to listen to their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I am not going to accept them. Rather, I'm going to make an end of them by the sword, famine, and pestilence. The people, they have loved to wander. God says, I'm going to remember their iniquity and call their sins to account. He's threatening punishment. And the punishment is sword, famine, and pestilence. And also, even if they fast, even if they cry, even if they offer burnt offering and grain offering, God will not accept them. Not at all. He won't accept their offerings and he rejects the prayer of Jeremiah for them. The righteous Jeremiah. It doesn't matter. Your prayers will not change a thing. Their judgment is certain. In Malachi 2.14 he speaks of the wife of your youth and companion, wife by covenant. The same in 15. The wife of your youth. This place, and in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 2, we can read Proverbs chapter 2, and verses 16 and 17, 2, 16, and 17. These two places in the Old Testament call the marriage, call marriage a covenant. 2, 16. To deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. In this case, it's the woman, and the woman 
she leaves her husband, the companion of her youth, and forgets the covenant of her God. Malachi and Solomon here in the book of Proverbs call marriage a covenant. This is important because if one reads the book of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 superficially, he may conclude that marriage is not a covenant. The Bible doesn't call it a covenant. God didn't first call it a covenant. It's just a relationship and it's, we may call it a contract, a relationship, a decision that just two individuals make, but there is no covenant covenant, and it's not before God. But that's not the way it is here. It was before the Lord in Genesis 1 and 2. And it's explicitly called a covenant here in Proverbs 2.17 and in Malachi 2.14. It is definitely a covenant. If it is a covenant, then there are vows and oaths that are pronounced. And when that happens, we ought to take it all the more seriously. 2.15, those who have the Spirit do not flaunt the sin, do not commit the sin, do not practice the sin. Instead, their concern is to raise godly offspring by preserving their marriage and teaching their children the ways of the Lord. This we find in Abraham's case. Abraham in Genesis 18, 19. Genesis 18, 19. For I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Abraham is to command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 7. After expressing the greatest commandment, he explains the first recipients of that commandment or the first students of that commandment. Chapter 6, 4, 4 to 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. The mother and grandmother of Timothy understood these truths, even though the mother of Timothy was married to an unbelieving husband. The mother of Timothy was married to an unbelieving husband. And this presumably was before her conversion. She was a Jewess and he was a Greek. This is according to Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Acts chapter 16, verse 1. 
And he came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. The mother a believer, father a Greek, an unbeliever. And what was she supposed to do? After her conversion, what was she supposed to do? Remain married to him or divorce him? Remain married. And while she remained married to him, this is what she and her own mother did to Timothy. We find this in 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy 1, 5. 2 Timothy 1, 5. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, for which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. The faith that Timothy has was first in Lois, then Eunice. And they didn't keep it to themselves. Chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. 2 Timothy 3, 14. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. These wicked men in the book of Malachi, they forfeited all this. They gave it all up. They married the daughter of a foreign god who will not teach their children the scriptures. And therefore, the salvation of the children was in jeopardy. That's what happens. So, 2.16, Malachi 2.16, I hate divorce. The NASB handles this phrase according to the way the Hebrew is written in the best way. There is a a tendency with at least one or, or more translations such as the English Standard Version, ESV, to render 2.16 as for he hates and divorces. He hates, meaning the husband hates his wife and divorces his wife. It's still not approving of it in the context, even in the ESV, However, it is taking away some of the sting because if the subject of the verb hate is the man and not God, it's taking away some of the sting of what Malachi is preaching here. Okay, so that's one of the issues that we must understand the modern translation, any modern translation or any translation, even old one, that says he hates, it's not handling the translation in the best way. This is the best way. And why is this the best way? For one, it says, right after it, says the Lord, the God of Israel. So who is the speaker in the quotation in verse 16, God. 
for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. It makes sense that way. Um, Says the Lord, the God of Israel, that's called a declaration formula. But who is the speaker in the quotation? It's God. That's why it says, says the Lord, the God of Israel. It makes sense that way. Further, if God is the subject of the verb hate, I hate divorce, God is also the subject that carries on this hatred to the man who divorces and him who covers his garment with violence. He also hates the man. But it doesn't make sense for the man to hate divorce in the way the ESV does it, because it doesn't make sense, good sense of the second half of the hatred. The first half of the hatred is the sin. The second half of the hatred is the man who sins. And it's, again, says the Lord of hosts. Says the Lord of hosts. Now, one might say, well, if it says, says the Lord, why does it say, says the Lord, the God of Israel? Because we have first person in verse 16, I, Third person in verse 16 says, the Lord, the God of Israel. Why is it this way? Well, we have something like this happening in chapter 1, verse 9. Where there is not consistency in the personal pronouns or the persons. First person, second person, third person. One nine says, But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly? Says the Lord of hosts. Who is actually preaching? The prophet. Will you not entreat God's favor? That he may be gracious to us. With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly? Will he receive you or us? Will God do so? Says the Lord of hosts. Why is God saying God's favor? In other words, in Malachi 1.9. Why is the Lord saying God's favor? And... This would make sense if we're speaking of the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Then we could make sense of 1.9 and 2.16. That's the way we'll take it. Okay, we'll conclude our study there. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.